With that, if you would, please open up your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We're going to begin this morning at verse 12 of John, chapter 15. And we're in this extended section that really takes up five chapters in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus speaks with his disciples in the upper room on the very night that he would be betrayed, and on the day before he would be crucified, the night before he would be crucified. And you can imagine in that kind of situation, in those kind of circumstances, you you don't mess around. You're not talking about light, trivial things. When you know, I know there wasn't a clock up on the wall of the upper room, but if there were a clock, Jesus would be able to look and say, in an hour, I'm going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. In 13 or 14 hours, I'm going to be nailed to a cross. At a time like that, you're not dealing with trivialities. You're not dealing with distractions. You're getting down to the most important things. And you're preparing your disciples for what life would be like once you left. Jesus had lived with these disciples day in and day out for three years. He had shared his life with them And they had shared their life with his and everything was going to change now in a matter of hours when Jesus departed from them. And as we saw in John chapter 15, the first thing that we saw last week, Jesus wanted them to know that when he left them, their relationship would not end. You could see how they would think that. Jesus is around us all the time. Now he's going to leave relationship over. That's how it works in many human relationships, doesn't it? But Jesus said, no, You will continue to abide in me and I will abide in you and our relationship will continue. That's what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 15. But now he wants to stress in a secondary sense, starting at verse 12, that when he departs, it's important to them how they relate to one another. Look at it right here, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Can you imagine the emotion that there was in the voice of Jesus as he spoke to his disciples? He looked at those 11 men around the room, probably as they stood in this long goodbye before leaving the upper room. Judas had already left. As he spoke to those 11 men, the, the, the emotion in his voice as he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, Jesus really cared that they love one another. It wasn't automatic that they would. The disciples were not all alike, and there was a lot of dissension and fighting between them during the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. We would have every reason to believe that Jesus was the only thing that held them together, and once Jesus departed from them through the cross, the resurrection, and ascension to heaven, once Jesus left them, then the one thing that kept them together was gone, and they would just all go their own ways. That's it, guys. The disciple thing's over. We're done. Everybody go do your own thing again. Find another gig. And Jesus said, no, I want you men to stay together and I want you to love one another. Matter of fact, this is my command to you that you love one another and that you do it. Notice that phrase, as I have loved you. 
Jesus had sent out the disciples earlier in the ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, it describes them. And when he sent them out before, he gave them a big, long list of instructions. Listen, uh, don't take a money bag, go into the city, find the house of peace, speak to them. If they reject you, five, six, seven different instructions, very specific. Now when he says, I'm sending you guys out, here's one instruction, love one another. Don't you think it's true that when the church gets that right, everything else has a way of falling into place? It sounds fairly simple. Hey, everybody, let's just love one another. And in a sense, it is. But do you see the measure of love that Jesus told them to practice? Let me read this phrase to you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That makes me want to collapse on the floor. Jesus, I know how you loved me. You love me with no reserve. You love me with everything. You poured out everything for my benefit. That's how you're telling me to love others? He said, yes. I want you to love one another, love those within the body of Christ with that particular strong kind of love. And friends, this made such an impression on the apostle John. We have writings from the early church that tell us this, that when John was a very old man, so old that they had to carry him to church services where he would teach, when John was a very old man, they would say, John, what should we know? Tell us what we should have in our minds. Tell us what we should do to live the Christian life. This is what John would say. He would say, little children love one another. And he'd always say it the same way. Little children love one another. Now, some people got kind of bored with that. John Why do you always tell us little children love one another? Why is it always the same thing? And John would reply, there's two reasons. First of all, he said, because it is the commandment of the Lord. You can just imagine how that stuck in his mind. This is my commandment that you love one another. It's not just like a suggestion, it's a commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another. But then secondly, he said, it alone is enough. Jesus, would you please fill us with your love and give us the ability to love one another? This is essential. This is key to who we are as believers, key to who we are as followers of Jesus Christ and to do it in his measure. You saw the measure, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus said, I'm gonna give it all. I'm gonna lay down my life in the greatest measure for you all. This is the measure of love I want you to have in your heart as you love one another. And then the mention of laying down life for your friends, it sort of brings this recalling to mind, Jesus in verse 15, where he says, he says, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Isn't that amazing? You see, Jesus described the measure and the quality of his love for them as a measure and a quality of love that treats servants as if they were friends. Look, sometimes it's hard to figure out, isn't it? Am I a servant of Jesus or am I the friend of Jesus? And the answer is yes. Am I Jesus' servant? I want to be Jesus' servant. And I don't mind relating to him that way. I don't mind putting myself in the company of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle James who introduce himself as servants of God. Jesus, I'm plenty content to be your servant. But it's as if Jesus looks down from heaven and goes, I regard you as my friend. You know, there's a difference between a servant and a friend. In the ancient world, they had a lot of servants. 
but basically they regarded a servant as a tool with skin. Servants weren't, you know, partners in the work at all, any more than a hammer is a partner in the carpenter's hand. It's just a tool that he uses. So Jesus just said, no, 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 you guys are more than just tools with skin to me. You're my friends. You're my partners in the work. Friends, Jesus is looking for more than just workers in his kingdom. He's looking for partners. He's looking for friends. And it's fine for us to have a sense of burden for what Jesus wants us to do. But do you understand this? That all that Jesus wants us to do with him, it's almost just an excuse to spend time with him. It's as if he says, I want to call you into this work that I could do just fine But if you do it with me in my name, you and I will spend time together and our friendship will develop. This Wednesday, we're going to serve lunch for the teachers and the classroom staff over at Franklin School. And you know, Jesus knew how to put on a lunch. He did the whole loaves and fishes thing. You could say, in theory, he doesn't need our help at all to put on that lunch. But it's as if he calls us alongside and goes, I just want to spend time with you doing something with the same purpose. Let's spend time together and do it. That's what friends do together. He looks at us as so much more than just workers for his kingdom, but truly friends built on that relationship. Now, notice one other thing just before we move on to verse 16. He also said in verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. If someone is truly a friend of Jesus, there will be a measure of obedience in their life. Will there not? And the only reason I mention that is every once in a while, you'll run across a person who claims to be a great pal of Jesus. Oh, Jesus and I, we're like this. We are this close, me and Jesus. But there is pronounced disobedience in their life. They just need to come back to verse 14 and remember what Jesus said. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. I think it's interesting that just after Jesus gave them these great words about not only being servants, but being friends, which is a high position. To be a friend of a king is pretty high status. Then he instantly says, but please remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In other words, he doesn't want them to get a big head about their status as friends. I don't know how to put it to you except maybe just to say this. Here's the good news. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. But here's sort of the flip side of the good news. He does not love you because you're so wonderful. Because look, peel away the surface. We're not so wonderful, are we? God loves me not because I'm so wonderful, but because he is so wonderful. And so with you. That's why he he chooses us. And in those days, the disciple would choose the master, would choose the rabbi they wanted to follow. That's the way it was done. Jesus says, no, man, 
you didn't choose me, I chose you. And verse 16, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. I I didn't appoint you just to enjoy some kind of status, but to go out and to bear fruit for my kingdom. I want you to do something for me in this world. You'll do it through prayer, verse 16, that whatever you ask the Father in my name may give you. But then in verse 17, do you see where he brings it back again? Just to emphasize it with repetition, that you love one another. Are we getting the point, people? He wants us to love one another. I wonder if the Holy Spirit would not reveal to your heart and my heart right now someone within God's family that we're having a hard time loving and we need to do something to demonstrate our love for them. Maybe you pray for them. Maybe you write them a note. Maybe you send them a text message. Maybe you do something just to demonstrate love for them. Jesus cares about this a lot. He wasn't wasting time a few hours before his arrest on trivial things. Verse 18. Now, verse 18, we begin a different section. Verses 1 through 11, he said, this is going to be my relationship with you as I depart. Then starting at verse 12, he said, this is how I want you to relate to one another once I depart. Now at verse 18, he's going to talk about our relationship to the world at large once he departs. Ready for this? Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Friends, it's kind of a heavy thing. Look at those words in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we got the greatest message in the world. It's such a great message that we call it the good news, the gospel. That that because of what God did in Jesus Christ, especially with what Jesus did at the cross, God has reconciled man to God and we just need to come to him and not earn our way before him, but in faith and loving trust in Jesus, we can receive the reconciliation and have his love, have his joy, have his peace fill our life. That's a pretty good message, don't you think? then how in the world does that arouse such hostility from the world? Isn't that weird? Wouldn't you expect the disciples to scratch their head about this? And it would be even more so when Jesus would rise from the dead. Wouldn't that convince everybody? Apparently not. Jesus told his disciples that the world would often hate them. And as wonderful as Jesus is, as wonderful as his message is, they should expect to be rejected when Jesus departed just as much as they were opposed when they walked with Jesus during the three years. Do you understand that when Jesus walked with his disciples over the three years of his earthly ministry, he was often opposed, and friends, he was often opposed by religious people. Religious people can reflect the values and the culture of the world instead of the kingdom of God. And that's where a lot of this persecution that Jesus spoke of was going to come from. 
You see, the disciples that Jesus spoke to that very night, those 11 men, every one of them would know what it meant to be hated by the world. Every one of those 11 men would die a martyr's death. You better believe the world was going to hate them. Well, no, I take that back. One of them, at least according to the histories or traditions we have of the early church, John did not die a martyr's death. They tried to kill him, but it didn't work. According to the legends, history, whatever you want to call it, they put John into a vat of boiling oil. And not only did he survive, but his skin came out with a beautiful moisture and sheen. I don't know about that part. But he survived. He survived. And John did not die a martyr's death. John died uh, uh, a natural death. But all the other ten were martyred for their faith. And the earliest Christians knew exactly what Jesus meant by this. They knew the hatred of the world. Did you know what ancient Romans used to say about early Christians? They looked at early Christians and they called them haters of humanity. They looked at early Christians and they said that they committed terrible crimes and they had evil superstitions. They looked at early Christians and they said they're cannibals. They they said they're sexually immoral. You say, well, where would they get these things? Why would they ever say that Christians were haters of humanity? Well, friends, they wouldn't run off to the same parties at the pagan temples and the orgies at the houses of prostitution. Well, you don't want to do that. Well, you must hate humanity. The Christians say, no, we love you. We love you, man. We're just not going to run off into the same wickedness that you guys seem to love. Why would they ever say that Christians were cannibals? Well, you know, they did have this ritual meal where they got together and they ate the body and the blood of their founder. They must be cannibals. Why would they ever say that Christians had orgies and were sexually immoral? Well, friends, they got together in their meetings and they said, love one another. And we know what that means. I'm serious. These were lies that, that ancient Romans used to say about Christians. They knew what it was like to be hated by the world. But friends, it didn't end back in ancient Rome. Christians are persecuted and lied about and martyred today. Christians through the centuries have known this hatred of the world and millions have died for Jesus. Matter of fact, it is said that more believers have died for Jesus in the 20th century, from 1900 to the year 2000. In the 20th century, more believers died for Jesus than in all previous centuries combined. If you think that the age of martyrs was back in the early church, no, you go by the sheer numbers, the age of martyrs is today. And our heart goes out to our brothers and sisters all over the world who have to pay the ultimate price for their faith, who have to perish because they stand for Jesus Christ. Our hearts go out to them. Now Jesus also said, look at it there in verse 18, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now look, let's face it. Jesus attracted attention from a great multitude of people and he attracted devotion from individuals. Yet as a whole, the world hated Jesus and it might just hate us as well. Why? Why would the world hate Christians? Sometimes we as Christians are hated just because we're different. We have different values. We may have a different morality. 
We have a different way that we live. Our life is centered on Jesus Christ. They're not. You know, sometimes people are persecuted just for being different. I read a story this week about a man named Jonas Hanway. Jonas Hanway was the man who invented the umbrella. He was an Englishman. You would think that a man who lived in England would invent the umbrella. They said when Jonas Hanway first invented the umbrella and walked down the street with an umbrella, people threw mud and sticks and stones and filth at him. Why? Just because he was different. Of course, a few years later, everybody was carrying an umbrella. But the first guy to do it, to be so different, people thought it was strange. And sometimes people will hate you and attack you just because you're different. But listen, let's be honest here. Sometimes Christians are hated because they're rude jerks. I'll say something now, and I'll say it probably three or four times within the message this morning. It is an honor to be rejected or to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's an honor. It's a shame to suffer for being a rude, obnoxious jerk. So don't do it. We shouldn't be of that party at all. We should be so filled with love, so filled with the heart of Jesus, that it's true that if anybody rejects us or persecutes us, it's because we're doing things in Jesus' name. If we're going to be hated, let it be because we're like Jesus and for no other reason. But look, let's face it. The world is fine with just a little bit of Jesus in your life. If you keep it in the right place and don't let him leak out much. But when Jesus Christ is lifted up as Lord in your life, you're going to face some persecution. The world is going to oppose you for that. Yeah, a little bit of Jesus, just sprinkle it on top. That's great. But you start living for Jesus, you're going to face some pushback. And that's what Jesus warned them about. Because, verse 19, because you are not of this world. You're not of it. I chose you out of the world. The world rejects you, but I accept you. And Jesus warned them, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We do not expect to be above our Lord Jesus in such matters. Now, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have had no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, They hated me without a cause. Please notice that in verse 21. Jesus said, why do they persecute me? They persecute me because they do not know him who sent me. You can know this. If somebody's persecuting a true follower of Jesus Christ, they really don't know God. They don't. They may say they do. But Jesus said, no, they don't really know me. Because once they've had it revealed, verse 22, now they have no excuse for their sin because Jesus did come and because he did speak the words of God, because he came among them and did the works of God, they had no excuse. May I just make a side point here relevant to what Jesus says in verse 22? Please notice this. Jesus said God's words. He did God's work among them and it made them more accountable. The principle is this. Greater revelation brings a greater accountability. For some of you, it's a dangerous thing for you to come to a church like this. 
you went to a church where they didn't teach you God's word, if you didn't hear God's message to you week after week, it might be easier on you. But what are you going to say before God on the day of judgment? You didn't hear it? You heard it every week. Greater revelation brings a greater responsibility. Now going on, Jesus says, verse 25, quoting from Psalm 65, he says, they hated me without a cause. There was no cause for the world to hate Jesus and his father the way they did. And the disciples should expect the same thing, that they would be hated without a cause. But friends, let me just stress the point again. If the world is going to hate us, let it be that they hate us without cause, not because we're rude jerks. Peter said this very well in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me read to this passage. Jesus said, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the matter. So I'll say it again. It's an honor to suffer for no cause or for the only cause being like Jesus. It's a shame to suffer for being a rude, obnoxious person. I heard a story, and it was many years ago, about a man who worked in a um, warehouse. And he was a Christian man, and he got fired from his warehouse job. And somebody asked him, well, why'd you get fired from your warehouse job? And he said, oh, I was persecuted for the name of Jesus. I was just trying to glorify Jesus on my job, and they fired me. I don't understand it. Woe is me. Well, the guy who heard the story thought, wow, that's pretty crazy. They fired a guy at a warehouse for being a Christian. What did he do? And he dug into the matter, and this is what the guy did. In that warehouse, they had one section of the warehouse that was filled with television sets. And this man thought the television was a tool of the devil. So he walked around kicking in the television sets, destroying them, and every time he gave a kick, he would say, tool of the devil, and walk onto the next television set. Sir, you didn't get fired for being a Christian. You got fired for being a rude jerk, and you should be in jail for what you did. Do you see the difference between the two? It's a pretty clear difference. And we just simply need to understand, take it to heart, it's an honor to suffer for Jesus, but not for other reasons. Now, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Catch this, folks. When Jesus ascends to heaven, when he departs from them, He will send down the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, who he will send in the name of the Father. He will come and he will empower them to bear witness. Jesus, I'm not leaving you on earth just so you could be a punching bag for the persecution of the world. No, I'm leaving you on this earth so that you can bear witness of me even in these difficult circumstances. And ladies and gentlemen, the glorious testimony of the church is that's exactly what's happened. As one of the early Christian writers, he said that the blood of the martyrs has become the seed of the church. And the more you kill us, the more we grow. The more you persecute us, the more we testify of who Jesus is. And we see his greatness work in our life. The Holy Spirit comes down, he testifies of Jesus, and he works that testimony out in us. But don't miss what he says there in verse 26. What does the Holy Spirit do? He will testify of me. 
Jesus told them that the helper, the Holy Spirit, would continue the work of Jesus. And he would testify of Jesus. The Holy Spirit generally does not like to call attention to himself. The Holy Spirit's always pointing to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. And, and, if there is work or activity happening that is not in the character or according to the word of Jesus, you can know that it's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit works as Jesus works, he will testify of me. Now let's take a look here at the last few verses. We're going to go into the first four verses of chapter 16. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. (laughs) Disciples, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Disciples, there's going to be men who come along, and when they persecute and kill you, they're going to be absolutely convinced that they're doing God a service. It didn't take long for that to happen. Do you remember a man in the book of Acts named Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, when he persecuted Christians, he was absolutely convinced that he was doing the work of God. He thought he was doing a good thing before God until God got a hold of him in life and showed him, do you remember what God said to him, what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not those Christians. But Jesus took the persecution of his people so personally, he regarded it as his own persecution. Do you see what this says to us? When you are rejected for Jesus' sake, Jesus is right there beside you and he knows what it's like. When you are persecuted for Jesus' sake, Jesus knows exactly what that is and he is right there beside you. He owns it as his own persecution. But notice those words. The time is coming that whoever kills you thinks that when he offers God, that will think that he offers God service. Now it's interesting historically because we live in that age right now, do we not? Do I even have to say this? Do I even have to talk about how the fact that in the radical, violent Muslim world, that those who slit the throats of Christians, those who force them to be refugees, those who violate Christian women, those who commit unspeakable horrors against Christians, they are absolutely persuaded that they are doing it in the will of God. And Jesus sees it, and he takes it very, very personally, and we ache for our brothers and sisters around the world who bear this burden and bear it bravely. They they, they stand for us. They show a courage that at this moment we are not called upon to show, but maybe one day we will be. And we recognize that these are people being persecuted by those who do it in the name of God. And friends, it's been that way through most of church history. Muslims are killing many Many Christians today, and we need to remember and pray for our dear brothers and sisters in those other parts of the world. 
But notice what Jesus says at the very end there, verse 4. When the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. In other words, I didn't want this to be a surprise to you. When I was with you, I protected you. When Jesus was with the disciples, all the opposition sort of got focused upon him as a laser beam. But now, now Jesus says, I depart. You're going to have to face it in a different way, but I will be with you in the midst of it. That's the great message of the suffering we endure. Friends, Jesus is God with us. He's Emmanuel, including with us in our suffering, with us in our rejection. When a Christian is martyred or suffered, Jesus is there with them. When you are rejected for Jesus' sake, Jesus is very close to you. Even when you're laughed at in the name of Jesus. Have you ever had that? You ever had somebody laugh at you or mock you because you're a follower of Jesus? Whenever that happens to me, I try to remember what Charles Spurgeon said. He said that this is how we should react when we're mocked, when people laugh at us for being followers of Jesus. We should just say this, you know what, there's so much sorrow in this world that if I can bring some laughter to anybody any way I can, that's a good thing. I think that's putting a pretty nice angle on it. But listen, friends, whatever it be, whether we're mocked, whether we're persecuted, whether we're rejected or martyred, Jesus is very close to us in it. But we always remember It is an honor to suffer in any way for our master's sake. He gave it all, didn't he? He gave everything. If he calls us to give up something in that critical moment, to stand up with him, then we say, Jesus, Jesus, you helping us will do it. We just always endeavor, God helping us, that we will not be mocked, rejected, or persecuted for being rude, obnoxious people but only ever for being like Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, this is our prayer. We need this. And Lord, first, we remember our brothers and sisters, especially those under persecution in the Muslim world and in other places, those who are refugees, those who are impoverished, those who are denied education, those who are are, uh, tortured, those who are imprisoned, those who are martyred. We remember them and stand with them and ask that, Lord, not only would you bless them and relieve them and strengthen them, but we pray that rich, glorious fruit would come from the suffering they endure with you. But Lord, we pray for us. We pray that you would prepare us should greater persecution come in our own culture. But Lord, help us to live such lives to glorify our Savior that if we would be mocked or rejected or persecuted, it would be because we're like Jesus. That's our heart's desire. Lord, draw near to the suffering. Draw near to the hurting. Do it now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.